0: Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, once again, I'm interviewing someone who has become uh, my most endearing and favorite guest. I think he means me. And I do mean you. Myself, yes. I love interviewing myself. What a strange feeling for an interviewer. Our topic today is going to be the nature of the afterlife, the forms that it can take. And I would imagine, uh, to begin with, the first question is, well, why would you even want to address this subject? You're not dead yet. That's right. I'm very much alive, just as, as you are. And yet, at the same time, let me propose, let me postulate that we are all both dead and alive at the same time. How can that be? it's like this. We partake in the great consciousness, the consciousness that Schopenhauer described as the one mind that sees through the eyes of every living creature. It's the consciousness of oneness that all the mystics in every culture have described. and That consciousness is both awake and asleep, dead and alive, here and there, past and future. All the opposites are reconciled in that one consciousness and we partake of it because without that we wouldn't exist at all. Well, you're getting down to the bedrock here, aren't you? And, and the interesting thing is, of course, <laughs> how do we go from this unique skin-encapsulated ego that we experience ourselves to be all the time to this sense of one cosmic consciousness. That indeed is the mystery and it is the mystery that we will address in our discussion today. But let me be very clear about one crucial point. This is a vast, vast subject. I could talk for days about it, endlessly. Not, not just days, for tens of thousands of years. This conversation will go on and, and in truth, has been going on since the very earliest inklings of humanity, uh, prehistorical humanity. This has been a, a discussion amongst people, and I'm going to try and address it in, in a few minutes. Let's begin uh, by talking about uh, one person who has been our, my, and your intellectual hero, William James. It's good you mention William James because he certainly addressed this topic and furthermore there's another wrinkle in the story because it has been suggested, and I have denied, that I am the incarnation of William James. It was suggested first by Walter Semkew. It's been even written up in his book uh, Return of the Revolutionaries. But uh, Walter was kind enough to admit in that book that while he postulates this, he ignores that I don't agree with it." And he points out that William James wouldn't have agreed with it either. And yet, there were a few telling things. For example, I happen to own the uh, website WilliamJames.com. I got it in the early days of the internet when this sort of uh, acquisition was possible. And Uh, there are other. There's a whole series, I think we'd have to call them synchronicities, that talk about my connection with William James. So, the intriguing thing here is, let's take as a given, I'm somehow connected to William James. We both had a fascination with the question of life after death, with the question of our paranormal, or as James liked to say, supernormal abilities, and there's the uh, question of, well, just how are we connected? Is it possible, for example, that Uh, one great soul, such as William James undoubtedly was, can be merged into the cosmic reservoir that he referred to. The cosmic reservoir, the one universal mind at death, a a great soul can merge into that reservoir and be divided into, let us say, a million other pieces that get spread around and, and You see, we're all facets of that one great mind if we're to believe the mystics, and I do. We're all facets of that one consciousness. We are all, to use the words of Joseph Campbell, we are each of us, each and every one of us, a mask of God. And uh, when Jesus, for example, said, what you do to the least among us, you do to me, would be literally true in that sense. Not only the least among us, but the greatest among us are all different masks of the one universal consciousness. Now, after death, What becomes of our egos? And uh, even more, how is the individual ego connected to the greater consciousness? Well, I know the connection of the individual ego to the greater consciousness is one that I've addressed in earlier in Presence Monologues. and I like to cite uh, my A mentor, a a very beloved mentor, Arthur M. Young, who used to say that it's the realm of mythos, the archetypal realm, that connects the individual ego to the the undivided oneness of consciousness. It's through, you could say, the, the symbols, the myths, the stories that we tell ourselves. These stories ultimately connect us to the One Truth. But that's not not quite the same as getting to the many possibilities that exist for what we would call the afterlife. Good that you brought that up because let's let's address, for example, a comment made by one of our viewers recently, a fellow called Soteriologist, who. Uh, writes about reincarnation and uh, and one of the previous monologue dialogues like this when he says how do you reconcile the spiritualistic idea of uh, seven levels of uh, heaven through which the soul migrates until it achieves oneness with god as expressed in the book the road to immortality written by Geraldine Cummins but supposedly transcribed from the afterlife by the spirit of Frederick Myers, the great psychical researcher. Uh, These spiritualists didn't have much of a concept of reincarnation at, at all, for the most part. It just wasn't in their world view. But, uh, at the same time, we now are sitting upon and have talked about in the New Thinking Aloud series a vast literature of reincarnation. So, how do you reconcile a spiritualistic worldview involving the evolution of the soul but not taking reincarnation into account with all of the data and theory of reincarnation? Our friend Soteriologist suggests that these uh, ideas aren't reconcilable. William James himself felt that we've got to look at all of these possibilities. And when we, he felt we could map them out logically. And, and of course we can. We can have an afterlife where there's, there's just reincarnation. You reincarnate until you achieve nirvana or absolute enlightenment or you, have a, a, a realm of both. You have choices. and I think uh, the possibilities are infinite. Infinite possibilities for an afterlife. If you prefer an afterlife of total oblivion, and I think many people do, they would just assume not exist at all. Well, uh, that's within the realm of possibility and go into a deep sleep. In fact, Sir Isaac Newton. Interestingly, he believed in uh, what people often refer to as the hereafter. The Christian idea of at the end of time, we all get resurrected. We get resurrected in our physical bodies. But until then, we are in a deep sleep. We're, we're, we're as if dead. In fact, we're non-existent. There's no consciousness until the resurrection. That's an option. There are so many options written about in in the literature. There's uh, uh, Frank Tipler, the physicist, talks about, we'll all be resurrected one day inside of a computer. <laughs> in the far future when, when conscious beings are advanced sufficiently to build computers capable of resurrecting everybody, there's the um, possibility that when we die, as I mentioned earlier, our soul just fragments into a million pieces and each piece gets picked up inside of the soul of, of another living person. I've often thought that, well, if I'm not the incarnation of William James, and I certainly have no reason to think I am, I don't have any of his memories, for example, but maybe I have a little piece of his soul in me. Maybe I even have several pieces of William James' soul. And, and, and there are other people as well walking around who might share some of those pieces. I might run into them, (laughs) have a conversation with them at one time or another. William James was a psychical researcher. He was particularly interested in uh, the work with Mrs. Leonora Piper, the medium from Boston who he discovered and shared with his colleagues in the Society for Psychical Research. There's a vast literature on uh, séances with Mrs. Piper and he tried to make sense of them all. What what did he come up with in, in those sessions? Very important question, because William James uh, was a very thoughtful man, a brilliant thinker. and He confessed that, that he had many different moods about this. Uh, there were times when he found the idea of survival absolutely repugnant. He was trained as a scientist. He was a medical doctor amongst other things, although he never practiced medicine, but. He, he had within him the materialistic sense that was so dominant in the 19th century in which he lived most of his life. And, and so the notion of, of, of survival, especially for a professor at Harvard University, for the founder of American experimental psychology, it was uncomfortable for him. On the other hand, he had a a mystical side to his personality (laughs) and he he, he had an appreciation for the, as as he called it, the cosmic reservoir of consciousness, the the oneness, the ocean of consciousness that, that we all share. He he used the analogy at one time of of the islands off the coast of uh, the eastern coast of the U S. There the there are a number of islands, and he said, yes, they appear to be separate, but if you go down under the ocean, you'll see they're all connected at the ocean floor. And with regard to Mrs. Piper, and with regard to the question of the afterlife, he said it's going to boil down to the dramatic possibilities. We have to look at the evidence and see how we're moved and people will be moved. Differently, according to their life experiences, uh, they'll be persuaded in different ways by the evidence. And he acknowledged this is very, very tricky evidence. It's it's full of error. It's full of fishing. It's full of uh, all kinds of uh, psychological nuances. The uh, blooming, bl- buzzing of uh, the stream of consciousness that he wrote about, and. Uh, yet, he felt that there was a thread of authentic communication coming through in the seances, and he wondered how much of this was due to normal uh, awareness, things that might have filtered through normal consciousness of Mrs. Piper the medium, how much of it might be due to her telepathy, how much of it might be due to her willingness as a, uh, a trance? Uh, entranced person, her subconscious mind, to personate or impersonate a a dead person. For example, his departed friend Richard Hodgson. How much of it might be Hodgson's spirit himself? How much of it might be, and William James was honest in saying, we got to look at this, too, how much of it might be a, a diamond or a demon, some other Existing spirit also trying to impersonate Hodgson. James acknowledged that he thought it was likely one of the last two, either really Hodgson coming through or some sort of demonic, daimonic spirit trying to impersonate Personate Hodgson. He said he could never tell which, and some of it might be Mrs. Piper's own telepathy as well, in combination with her subconscious desire to please the sitters. How much of it might be due to the combination of these things all coming together, working in conjunction with each other, sort of giving life to each other like uh, electrical sparks. How much of Hodgson's spirit might be permanent? and eternal in some sense, or close to eternal, how much of it might be temporary that only exists during the seance itself, brought to life by the energy of the participants. William James felt that we have to consider all of these things. He didn't think about reincarnation, but we, looking back, uh, for the benefit of over a hundred years, can say there's plenty of evidence for that, too. Let's throw that into the mix. How are we to make sense of it all? And, you know, from our perspective here in the body, we want to be empirical. We want to say, where does the evidence point? Let's gather as much evidence as we can and then build our theories around the evidence. That would be the empirical approach. and The irony is, the empirical approach, as traditionally defined, means evidence that we gather through our senses of the external world. But William James himself had a different idea. He called it radical empiricism, in which he said, you know, Sensory data is very important, but it's not the most immediate data. The most immediate data is consciousness itself, pure consciousness. All of the information from our senses would have no meaning if it didn't enter into consciousness. That's where we have to start. And When we begin talking about consciousness, we're thrown back to the uh, philosophers of whom William James was quite aware, Fechner. Schopenhauer, Kant, the great German idealists, for example, (laughs) who pointed out, (laughs) as Schopenhauer himself did, under the influence of Buddhism and Vedanta, talking about the one consciousness that sees through the eyes of all creatures. But that comes first. And from that point of view, uh, the idea of our senses, our bodies, you could say that the body itself, we, we often think, that consciousness exists in the body, the ghost in the machine, so to speak, or consciousness is an epiphenomenon produced by the electrical activity of the brain. But, from the point of view of idealistic philosophy, as my friend Bernardo Castrup has often explained, you could see it as the reverse. It's not as if consciousness exists in the body. It's rather that the body exists within consciousness when the body is gone consciousness which was always there still remains and according to bernardo in the interview recently released with him then the memories the uh, impulses, the personality traits, all of that merges back into the great oneness of consciousness. Bernardo doesn't necessarily allow for the uh, possibilities, as expressed, for example, by my guest Stafford Betty, who draws upon the uh, Eastern traditions further, the idea of sheaths or levels of consciousness. He calls it transcendental materialism, by what he which he means subtle kinds of bodies that we have the astral body, the etheric body, if we were to go on into theosophical terms. And, and I have to say, uh, <laughs> Sir Oliver Lodge, the great 19th, early 20th century physicist, uh, talked about the etheric, field and the etheric body a lot because he believed in it in the early days of radio and electromagnetic transmission. That was the dominant theory and it got picked up by the theosophists. It's all very interesting, but maybe we're getting a little off track talking about the etheric body here uh, and pointing out that it uh, maybe the idea even goes back to Oliver Lodge himself. Nevertheless, the the issue that you're trying to address is the possibilities that the ego can exist in different forms, cloaked in different substances, different types of bodies, uh, in what we think of the as the afterlife, and that ego can manifest itself in in, in different ways. and Surely, if you look at all the empirical data collected by psychical researchers and parapsychologists and spiritualists and spiritists and uh, writers and philosophers of all sorts, points to many sorts of manifestations that suggest different forms in which egos, of deceased people, of discarnate individuals, seem to persist. Yes, that is exactly right and William James then uh, calls upon us to have a very sophisticated map in mind about how all of these possibilities can be reconciled somehow in a cognitive, conceptual system And, and that is our challenge. Considering that we really aren't going to go on for 10,000 years about this topic, we we may have reached a a good stopping point here to consider. There's a lot to ponder for each and every one of us. So, let me thank you for being with me. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us.